Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Greenlight Bookstore. Through knowledgeable staff, curated book selection, community partnerships, and a robust e-commerce website, Greenlight combines the best traditions of the neighborhood bookstore with a forward-looking sensibility and welcomes readers of every kind to the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more and shop online at greenlightbookstore.com. And we're brought to you by Mindfair Books, located inside Oberlin, Ohio's iconic Ben Franklin Variety Store. With a broad mix of new and used books, Mindfair serves academic and general interest readers and collectors alike. Mindfair Books, an investment in knowledge always pays the best interest. Stop by or shop online at benfranklinoberlin.com. Sometimes I don't think I dream big enough. When I first became a writer, I used to joke that my goal was to publish a book and drive around with a cardboard box of copies in the trunk of my car. I pictured myself sliding one into a little free library or asking a local indie store to stock the title. And I've done that. When we meet a milestone, it's important to acknowledge that achievement, but also to keep moving the needle. That's not only true for the goals we have for ourselves, but for those we have for our neighborhood, our city, and beyond. What can I dream that is bigger and bolder than what I dreamed before? One of the things I admire most about today's guest is her ability to keep moving the finish line. Ruchira Gupta was a journalist in India reporting on one story when she stumbled upon another. Young girls were going missing in a local village and being sold into prostitution in the city. Instead of only writing that news story, Ruchira set about targeting and dismantling sex trafficking across India and around the world. Millions of women are victims of this horrifying trade. It would be easy to crumble in the face of that number and figure nothing can be done. Instead, Ruchira refuses to give up. She testified before Indian Parliament and lobbied the United Nations. She filmed a documentary and founded a nonprofit. Ruchira kept asking questions. She keeps sitting down with the families of the girls who were affected, kept asking what they needed to survive, and she figured out how to make more happen. Ruchira started with a single story and is leading a movement ongoing today. Ruchira Gupta is the founder and president of Apni App Women Worldwide. She's a social justice activist, feminist campaigner, journalist, Emmy award-winning documentarian, and professor at New York University, who has dedicated her life to creating a world where no child is bought or sold. Ruchira has been awarded countless honors for her efforts to end female trafficking, including the French National Order of Merit and the Clinton Global Citizen Award. Ruchira divides her time between New York and Forbes Ganj, her childhood home in the foothills of the Himalayas, where she paints her mother's garden. I Kick and I Fly is her debut novel. Ruchira Gupta, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you, Anne-Marie. I'm so thrilled to be on your podcast because I love the name Wild Precious Life. And I love your story about how you started Wild Precious Life to heal, to share and build a community. Oh, I am so grateful that, as I was mentioning before, we're in a mutual admiration society, you and I, because I read your bio and you're a social justice activist, a feminist campaigner, a journalist, professor, documentarian. I was awed by the power that a single person can have 
to be an agent of change in this world. I often feel so powerless in the face of all that I want to fix. And I was so grateful to hear that you channeled that powerlessness, the powerlessness of the of the women and girls you seek to help, and also you as one person, one journalist, into this sisterhood, this community that has has risen to affect real change. I'm just so grateful to to know of your work. Thank you so much. I'm just uh, so happy that here we are, two women connecting across India and the United States, across New York and Cleveland. And, you know, just the power of uh, stories in bringing us together, that I wrote a story uh, in a little village in India when a girl um, won a karate gold medal in my NGO, Apne Aap. And that story is now translated into a book for young American teens uh, who can all be champions in their own way. So, you know, I Kick and I Fly is to share the story as widely as possible. So I'm so happy that I'm talking to you. Well, I'd love to learn more about you. We're going to spend most of the interview, I think, talking about this book that you referenced. But before we do that, I'd love to learn more about how you this amazing woman came to be who you are. Will you tell us some of your story? Yes. You know, I used to be a girl growing up in Calcutta, which is one of the poorest cities in the world, you know, where Mother Teresa used to live. But something very unique in Calcutta is also the love of books, reading, writing, poetry. It's a city full of bookstores, of writers, filmmakers, and I was, of course, at a very young age, um, you know, imbued with that culture. So I wanted to be a writer, too. And my first uh, story, which is published, which I remember, is called The Autobiography of a Pencil. And it was published in my school magazine uh, called Lotus Buds. And then, uh, you know, of course, I decided after that, that I'm going to be a writer, published writer more and more. So I began to write. And, uh, you know, somehow when I was just about to get into college, I found a job in a local newspaper and they said, you have to be a graduate. So I negotiated and I would go to work in this newspaper in the day, uh, in the evening and go to college in the daytime. And, uh, you know, so journalism became my method of writing at that time. And as a journalist once, I was traveling through the hills of Nepal when I came across rows of villages with missing girls. I asked the men who were sitting around drinking tea, playing cards, uh, you know, where the girls were. And to my horror and to my sort of surprise, uh, they said they all are in Bombay, Mumbai, as it's now called. And I couldn't understand how, you know, so many little girls uh, could be in Bombay, which was like 1,400, 1,500 kilometers away. And these villages were so remote, they were like two and a half hours away from the highway. And so, of course, as a good journalist, I quickly finished the story I was on, which was about how villagers manage their natural resources and uh, started to actually explore um, the, this other story. And I followed the trail and I found to my horror that in my lifetime, in my generation, in my world, in my country, human trafficking still existed. And I saw that there was a smooth supply chain from these remote hamlets 
all the way to the brothels of Bombay, Delhi, Calcutta. So there would be a very poor, uh, innocent sort of farmer starving. He would let his daughter go, who was normally between the ages of 9 and 13, to a procurer who would say, I'll get your daughter a job in the big city or I'll get her married. And he didn't even know anything about what big cities look like. He would take $50, $100 to fix the leaking roof, to you know, give medicines to the younger child and let the daughter go. And this procurer would then put her in a bus or a train and take her to the border of India and Nepal. And there, there were these corrupt border guards, wink, wink, nod, nod, the girl was taken across the border. On the other side were the agents who would just take over these girls and transport them again in trains, buses, cars, all the way to the brothels of Bombay, Calcutta. And there, there would be the pimps, you know, who would negotiate the price of the girls depending on the beauty of the girl. Then the pimp would just hand buy this girl for like, you know, again, three, four hundred dollars, hand her over to a brothel manager. She would lock up the little girl in a room and there the girl would be exploited for four or five years by multiple men every night. I have met girls who were in the room for so long, they didn't know what the streets looked like. Then behind this brothel manager were, of course, the um, organized criminal networks, the financiers, the landlords. And finally, finally, there were the sex buyers, you know, who wanted little girls. They drove the demand for the industry. So I was like, I, you know, and these girls were just consumed and thrown away and they had children in the red light district and the children were then used to replace them. And I couldn't, I, I had never seen this kind of hell. As a as a journalist, you know, I'd covered conflict, I'd covered war, I'd covered famine, but I'd never seen this scale of exploitation and that too of little girls. So I was, I think first I was very sad, then I was angry and I wanted to do something about it. And because I was a journalist, I decided to tell the story. I made the documentary. Uh, you know, I was, um, somebody pulled out a knife at me while I was filming and the women saved me who wanted to tell their stories in my documentary so that they could have a better future for their daughters. People would throw stones at our cars, our permissions were refused to go into villages. It was like a nightmare, but we did tell the story. Documentary did get a screening in Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and then HBO. It's called The Selling of Innocence. And then uh, what happened was that... Um, I won an Emmy for Outstanding Investigative Journalism and everyone was offering me more jobs and opportunities and instead of um, taking those, all I could see were the eyes of the women I had interviewed, the mothers of the children and the mothers had told me that whatever had happened to them had happened but they wanted a different life for their daughters. So I saw, thought, I'm going to use my Emmy not to make more money or not to build a career. But I'm going to use it to make a difference. I took the documentary to the UN using the legitimacy of the ME and showed it there. And we managed to build alliances to get a whole new protocol to end trafficking in women and children. And then I did the same thing. Um, I took the documentary, The Selling of Innocence, and showed it to the US Senate. Uh, at that time, the United States government didn't have a law on trafficking. And then... I went to the women and I said, what can I do for your children? Because, you know, you had said you wanted something. So they said, uh, educate our children. I said, fine. They said, start an NGO. Let's start an organization. That was a bit daunting. We didn't know how to make a business plan. 
we didn't have any offices we just sat on a straw mat in the on the floor and i asked the women what their dreams were and they said they had four dreams the first was school for their children the second was a room of their own then the third uh, thing they said was that they wanted a job in an office which basically meant that they wanted sustainable and dignified livelihoods because the brothels are hell you know rows of rooms 20 rooms to one toilet small windows no ventilation constant noise 24/7 um, you know it's horrible no kitchens everyone's cooking on the floor the children play on the floor while the women are servicing the customers on the bed so it was just horrible so yeah i could understand what they meant and the fourth thing was they said that they wanted those who had bought them and punished them to be punished they said those who had brokered away our dreams so their dreams actually became my business plan fast forward you know now i'm coming to the present you know we have educated thousands of girls from red light areas uh, through school and even college many have jobs and so we have broken the cycle of intergenerational prostitution and at the same time i also began to organize the women because as the girls were getting girls and boys were getting educated the women began to realize that change was possible and today in forbes ganj uh, which i write about in my book i kick and i fly you know when i began working there 20 something years ago there were 72 brothels all down the street and uh, every brothel had a back every home all these 72 brothels had a back room where the customers would come and buy the girls and behind that was the big uh, sort of space where the annual carnival would come to you know for farmers where cattle were sold etc but along with cattle girls were sold there so uh, you know we not only got the girls we started our own school put the girls into the boarding school and that's where i started karate classes because these girls were being beaten challenged when they were going so i said okay even if they are going to be kidnapped let them kick these guys in you know so i started karate classes for them and that made a huge difference the women organized uh, we helped them get government ids most of them are, un- are undocumented that gave them voting rights the moment they got voting cards you know they became entities and because of that you know they began to get access to low cost food and housing and this reduces their vulnerability and when the traffickers uh, try to stop them then they had more confidence to fight back they fought back and they fought back and they put the traffickers in jail they testified in court they um, got convictions we had the up my ngo apne aap ko the first conviction for life imprisonment of a trafficker in india so you know the fourth dream that the women had punishment of those who bought them and sold them and i of course because i had helped in the passage of the un protocol and the us law and i now had the experience of sitting in circles with the women i was able to take notes and provide language to the commission which was set up and uh, for you know having a new trafficking definition included in the new sexual assault uh, law that was coming up in parliament i was given time to go and testify in parliament about what i wanted i gave half my time to a survivor leader from the ngo apne aap to st- speak along with me and uh, it led to finally a change in the law and the trafficking bill 
becoming Section 370 of the Indian Penal Code, which decriminalizes women and punishes the traffickers and asks for budget allocations for exit programs very specifically. So it's been a long journey, but I never had time to pause and think about it. I just kept doing the work. I saw that, you know, 20 years of work actually yielded results and the red light area is almost non-existent in Forbes Ganj now. You know, where there were 72 brothels, there are only two. Even those will go very slowly, because very soon, because the women are aging out and they're not, we're not allowing them to bring in any girls there uh, at all. And the others, you know, the front rooms have become small shops and businesses for the women and the back rooms have become real homes. The traffickers are in jail and the children are in school, college and in jobs. So the entire area is transformed. And I thought, I've got to share this. And I began to think about it, you know, when did it begin? How did it begin? And then I had notes. I had started writing the plot of a book when the first girl in Forbes Ganj had won a gold medal in karate. And I said, I've got to tell the story. Like, it really made a difference, you know. Absolutely. So that's why I wrote I Quick and I Fly. It is such a triumph. And you wouldn't think in a story about women and girls in prostitution, you wouldn't think that you'd find hope there. But your story, the way you your reporting and then your activism intersects with it, we we do get to see change. Change is often so slow that we don't notice it. So the fact that you had a chance to stop and take stock of all that had happened while you were just so busy doing it. I, I have a 13-year-old daughter, so your story about the horrific world that awaits Hira is the name of the, of the protagonist in I Kick and I Fly. For those who've not yet had the honor to read it yet, your story about the horrific world that awaited Hira really hit me in a very soft and tender place. And for folks who are listening, I I mean, I, I heard you say this, and I, I think that as a parent, I, it's, it's very hard for me to comprehend. But why on earth would a parent sell their own child into prostitution? Yeah, you know, the, the subjugation of uh, nomadic tribes has been so hor- horrifying, horrific, and, uh, you know, it's not like overnight. They've been subjugated for like 150 years. So from grandfather to son to grandson to again the next man. And it just goes on. So, uh, you know, they begin to believe this is their destiny. And also every time somebody in this no- in these nomadic tribes resist or say no, they're beaten up by upper caste or upper class gangs and there is literally no police protection for them. So nobody will show up for them saying, why are you beating them up or why are you not giving them a job or why are you forcing them to join a criminal gang? So, uh, you know, it's done under many compulsions and pressures and I think... Um, If you ask me to go deep into Hira's father's mind who wanted to sell his daughter, um, it's also that I think they slowly to just survive and live, they become, they desensitize themselves as a coping mechanism. So it takes a lot to then rekindle the human spirit. I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. 
Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. When we meet Hira at the beginning of your book, she she's a 14-year-old girl. She's absolutely living in abject poverty. She's, I mean, a, her family of five is subsisting on a handful of rice and it's, it's soaked in water. She, she's absolutely, I can see how you, you'd feel you needed something if you were the father. You'd, you'd feel you're not providing something to economic reasons to to bring in money, right? This this is a means to, to an end. And, and she's... She's in school and she's being bullied because she's the child of, of you know, these these families who turn to prostitution. So she's being bullied for what she hasn't even become yet. Right. She's in she's in school because her mom's hoping to keep her out of prostitution. And in, in school, she's being bullied. And you have this um, this spunk and this fierceness in this girl who wants to fight back, who's knocking the teeth out of people. But she doesn't have she doesn't have. um self-defense. She doesn't have training yet. And so I thought that this, the way you melded together the powerlessness of Hira's situation, right? It's it's so much bigger than she is. These forces that expect her to just turn to prostitution like her cousin, like all these people, the powerlessness of her situation, and then the power of training in, in the martial arts. Um, you've, you wrote somewhere or said somewhere that, that quote, self-defense means I have a self worth defending. Oh, I got chills at the thought of that, that, that to teach a child self-defense is to, is to let her know that you are worth it. You are, you are worth defending. You are worth fighting for. Your life means something. And watching Hira come into her own and in your in your story, she learns kung fu, which I, I will confess was surprising to me. I didn't know that kung fu came to to India. I didn't realize that that was a martial art that that she would learn there. So yeah, you know, self defense is something. You know, the power of our bodies. We don't know it, and there's so much body shaming out there. I've realized, like you know, all of us always told sit straight, don't slouch, don't sit with your legs apart, or um, you know your dress is transparent or you're too too fat too thin i don't know a hundred different ways we are body shamed and it has such an impact on our self-esteem i find this a real problem in everyday life right and then when you are in a red light area about to be sold for your body i notice such a strange relationship that women have and girls have with their bodies they hate their bodies because they think that they're going to be exploited because of their bodies right so they you know they they hunch like their shoulders turn in to hide their breasts uh, they'll cover their heads they walk as if they're almost invisible and all of that until you know they have to then and on at the command of the brothel manager suddenly stand poking their breasts out you know and uh, putting hankies and phones inside their blouses to make their breasts look bigger put lipstick and then suddenly sexualize themselves so this is so stupid, you know, from one extreme to the other, but it's also so outrageous what we make a human being do, right? 
that's why I was thinking that what are the things when I began Apneyap, I knew that I had to overcome this barrier about the body. And I really didn't know how because everything was invented as we went along. And that's why it's a good thing that my NGO's name is also called Apneyap, which means self-action because we literally had to figure it out. And so, um, you know, we thought, okay, dance, mime. And then, uh, you know, I saw, I used to walk and or drive by and I used to see this group of people uh, teaching these boys in white uniforms uh, karate. And I said, you know, why not try karate? And I myself had always loved Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon. And I used to sing that song all the time. You know, everybody loves Kung Fu fighting. Those kids <laughs> were as fast as lightning. Mm -hmm. So I used to like him. I liked his philosophy. He was very big in India. Uh, you know, there are karate and Kung Fu and all kinds of martial arts classes across India, you know. So it's easy to find teachers too. But also, um, you know, many people believe that Kung Fu comes from China, but some people also believe that Kung Fu comes from India. And there was some Buddhist monk called Bodhi Dharma, who used to be this martial arts yogi kind of person who then migrated to China and went to a Shaolin temple and made friends with people there and taught them this. And the words are so similar between Chan and Dhyan and Gyan as it circulates between Japan, China, and India in martial arts, you know, I can understand some of the meanings of the words because I know something in some original language, perhaps, I don't know, maybe I'm imagining it. But anyway, there is a connectivity. And I find that also fascinating. Well, and some of the quotes that you, you there are some quotes from Bruce Lee in the book, and that one quote, be like water, I will confess at first, I'm like, well, I don't see how being like water is going to help her in this situation. But as the story unfurls, we get these explanations. Um, you write, you know, quote, water is the softest substance in the world, yet it can penetrate the hardest. It's impossible to grasp a handful of it, yet it does not suffer hurt. Stab it, and it is not wounded. Sever it, yet it is not divided. It has no shape of its own, but molds itself to the receptacle that contains it. And I started to see the way that these teachings would absolutely mirror what the young girls in their powerlessness would feel. You have another quote that says, you cannot be powerful all the time or you will break. And knowing when to be flexible and when to be strong, but be like water, flow, don't, don't crash. The way that Hira becomes like water, both flexible and strong, um, was really beautiful the way you wrote her. Thank you. And you know, that's the like, you know, the, for me, it was also the character, how she develops, right? And there are two characters here. One is Rini, the, the woman's right advocate. I kept making other, her you, by the way. She was, she just kept becoming you kind in of, my mind. Not all of it, but <laughs> pieces, of course, which uh -huh. she did, right? But so there's Rini, the, who's like a perfectionist. So she's very controlling and she always wants to create the perfect situation. So she, her problem is that she wants to control. And there is Hira, who's a child of the streets. She's a street fighter. So she, she's impulsive, she fights, she lacks control, which is why she keeps losing. So both have to make their own journey and they learn from each other. The adult from the girl and the girl from the adult through the practice of Kung Fu, how to let go and how to take control. And, the you know, centering your chi, as it's known in Kung Fu, like, how do you find it? And you have to be like water to be able to reach that. 
And so Bruce Lee was very wise. Uh, your reference to Rini D also made me think about the the larger activism in this book because yes, she's helping one girl in our in our story, but she's also tapped into this. This is not limited to the small town in northern India where where Hira comes from. These atrocities are happening globally, and sometimes the what would be best for Hira right then, this one person, is not what's best for the the larger collective, that if that if Hira runs in and confronts one person who's doing wrong, it's going to actually set back investigations that Rini D is doing in, in other places. So I, I thought about that sometimes fighting on behalf of one individual means you're going to let down a whole group of people, or that if you're fighting on behalf of a group, it means one person is feeling a- alone. But the I'm sure that in your activism, you've surely confronted times when you aren't feeling like you can help everyone the way that you want to help them. Every day, every day. And I get so many messages because, you know, I've tried to be accessible and out there. And sometimes I wish, you know, I wasn't so accessible. (laughs) But it's so flooded by calls and messages and emails. And everybody thinks that I will be able to do everything. And, you know, I, I don't. I'm not a magician. But the one thing that I've learned as an activist and as someone who's tried to do something is that do what you can. It doesn't matter if it's big or small, only time will show. Uh, And that's what's happened in my own life. Because when I was doing that, making a movie, or I was sitting in a circle on a straw mat in Bombay, I thought, oh, you know, I'll go away and live my life, be a journalist, work for the UN, whatever. And these 22 women are going to run their circle and send their kids to school. It doesn't work like that. We all worked at it together. And I built greater and greater alliances around the world. Uh, And uh, but also, I didn't know it was going to become this big thing, which would become an example to the world, which would be a story of hope, of success. You know, nobody, I didn't comprehend that I would succeed. I knew I wanted to. And I had this determination that anyway, it's so bad that whatever I do is going to be incrementally better. But I didn't know it would be transformative. I've transformed the whole red light area into a non-red light area. You know, I could call it a green light area if I could plant trees. And that's my next project is to have an avenue of trees in there. And, uh, you know, so anything is possible if we put our minds to it and we don't think about um, the perfect Uh, thing that we'll create and then begin the work. We have to begin work in the immediate. The other thing I learned as an activist is that many people like to create um, frameworks and Excel spreadsheets and all of that. And I worked in the UN, so of course I did all that, right? And I think there's an importance in that in terms of management, but not at the cost of the real grassroots work with real human beings, you know. It cannot ever replace that. No Excel sheet can replace a girl. And I remember, you know, my my team members would collect data and they would say, uh, oh, uh, the data says this. I said, but I can see the flesh and blood person in front of me, you know. I don't need the data. I have a human being who's talking in front of me saying she's in college. So <laughs> I don't know if she's in your Excel spreadsheet or not, you know. And I think we have to understand that, really understand that. And if we want people to listen to us, like as a feminist, if I wanted change, I also realized that I've got to listen to people. 
you know, I had to sit on the straw mat in the circle because the best solutions came from those who had experienced the problem. They don't come from people who are sitting theoretically and writing up frameworks. Never, ever. Well, I think that the what you're describing, I, I think that there's something powerful about this story that begins on a straw mat in northern India that then spreads a, across the world. And I was thinking about why I was myself so moved. Of course, it's it's as a mother of daughters, but it's also as inhabiting a, a female body in 2023. You, um, Hira's cousin says something beautiful. Hira's cousin has been sold into prostitution, right? She is trapped in, in the very thing that your organization is trying to get women out of. But she says, quote, no one has any right to a woman's body. Women should have the freedom to go out night or day to wear what they want, marry whom they want, study what they want, and have the livelihood they desire. No one owns them. They have the right to a life without fear. And again, those sentences were were written about poor girls in India who believe themselves destined for prostitution. But as a middle-aged woman living in America today, I could not help but hear echoes of this desire for bodily autonomy in the conversations we're having right here in our country where women often feel like second-class citizens, even though the books say different. Um, these these problems exist here too. So the, somehow the stories for me became very connected that the story of a child in Northern India and the story of women in American today, that that we actually all want very similar things for our bodies to be our own. Absolutely. And, you know, you're so right. And, you know, that's exactly why I wrote I Kick and I Fly. And I wanted to publish with Scholastic. And I'm so glad Scholastic is my publisher. Because I thought, you know, the success of Hira, where, you know, the adversity was so great, like a little village in Bihar and Fort Bisganj, where literally nothing exists except dirt and uh, poverty. Um, You know, to show that if that can work, anything can work, you know, and I wanted to share this with the next girl who's facing similar challenges in a different context to learn from Hira's story. I wanted to, uh, I wanted girls here and boys here to learn that, you know, they can stand up to injustice, they can fight for control of their own bodies and win. And there are lots of clues right through the book for young people, which is why I chose young adult as my medium of writing. I chose Scholastic as my publisher precisely for that. And that's why you'll see that, you know, while the backdrop is this dark world of sex trafficking, the main story is about a girl who's fighting back, fighting back and winning, fighting back and winning. And it's a very fast paced uh, social justice adventure. And, uh, So I think it's palatable. And when I was writing, I was also sharing it with uh, my twin uh, nephew and niece, a boy and a girl. And interestingly enough, you know, as I was writing the chapters, part one, part two, I would give it to this boy first. And he would say, oh, eight on 10. By the end, (laughs) by the time I finished it, he said, okay, 10 on 10. (laughs) I, I used to ask him, I said, you know, what were the scenes which affected you a lot? You know, I asked my nephew. And he said, you know, I want to know more about Salman, the brother of Hira, who wants to cut his dreams to size, uh, take a, get out of school and work in a, as a porter in a shop to help his sister stay in school. 
and i said yeah you know uh, i'm sure you do want to know salman salman wants to be a scientist and astrophysicist but his school is in a poor neighborhood it doesn't have a science lab well salman um hira's older brother also has this allyship with her because he he too is expected to follow a path that if the girls become prostitutes their brothers become pimps right it's a family business but he in some ways has more power to to break the cycle because education for a boy is at least considered maybe a little bit more than for a girl but he's still up against the the family expectation that he will join this business and he has to stand up in ways that are uncomfortable which which i think gives young boys an understanding that in fighting for women's equity whatever that looks like there there's a there's a role for them to play too right that that prostitution does not happen without men buying women right so yeah. that there there is a role for men to to say no no to all of this absolutely and they can really help you know because i've seen this I, there is a boy like salman there are many boys like salman you know in the ngo that i work with and i keep remembering them and how they did not want to go down this path you know and i watch how they are dehumanized and desensitized and groomed into pimping it's terrible it's terrible so yeah there's a different masculinity that we can think about you know i always think there used to be a word called um, gentleman and if we use the word gentleman then obviously we wanted uh, you know if that was the higher standard for a man it was his gentleness that's how the word gentleman must have come into being i love this oh i could talk to you all day about this book but they don't let us i always wrap with a kind of just multiple choice questions these are these are just about you the person and and your world view they are playful and uh give listeners a chance to get to know another um couple of aspects of the of the guest. Is that okay? Yes, of course. Yeah. All right, you just pick one, okay? Uh coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Beach. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Would you rather be able to kick or fly? Fly. Um which do you prefer more, little women or to kill a mockingbird? Right now to kill a mockingbird. I loved how the girls were reading little women in this book. The the timelessness of of that story but of course when you're fighting for justice uh, to kill a mockingbird would certainly resonate too um are you an early bird or a night owl early bird and are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are risk taker all the time <laughs> edge of adventure <laughs> um do you have a favorite movie or a favorite song or what's something a pop culture reference that people might latch on to that you like the latest song that i like very much is flowers my my girls have been listening to that i love it really by love. yourself flowers yes, yes. Um, <laughs> uh last two uh do you have a favorite ice cream yes the talenty chocolate oh yes i've had this it's very nice with a twist off lid and i oh, always yeah. when i open it up i'm like where who's eating all the ice cream and usually the answer is me yeah. <laughs> oh and the last one um this is just a a fill in the blank snapshot if we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love what would we see three things possibly you would either see me painting in a garden or you would see me crouched into a corner with a book or i would be walking by a river 
Oh, I love envisioning all of those things for you. Ruchira Gupta, thank you so much for making time today. Love chatting with you, Anne-Marie. And you know, who knows, I might end up in Cleveland, Ohio in some bookstore. So we'll hopefully meet again. Absolutely. I think that our, our paths will cross on this journey of starting your organization, Apne App. You, you wrote that, um, quote, I had no magic wand, no experience or knowledge, but I had resolve. Right? I had invented ways to move forward. And, and in this conversation, you talked about not being a magician, but you are magical, <laughs> Ruchiro Gupta. You, you do have magic, and thank you for your courage and resolve to show us you know, the power of women coming together for justice and change. Folks, Ruchiro Gupta's novel, her debut novel, is called I Kick and I Fly. You can find it wherever books are sold. It is um, a scholastic book, so hopefully you're, you're also going to see it in in book clubs and in schools around the country. To everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrub and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but, you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.